Hey y'all, Rick Houston here, and I want to tell you about my new show, the Moonshine and Motorsports Racing Podcast. I've partnered up with the state of North Carolina Department of Natural and Cultural Resources to help uncover the history behind moonshining mountain boys, professional wheelmen, and the backwoods and city lights of the Tar Heel State. In the first episode, I sat down with Winston Kelly at the NASCAR Hall of Fame for a little behind-the-scenes gossip about Junior Johnson's engineering skills. He's got two things in his hand, pipe wrench and channel lock pliers, and they weren't new. They had been been around the block a time or two. What's the first deal they built, I bet? No, no, you know, I think they were, the the pliers had been red before, but paint had worn off. And in the second episode, I talked to a professional hillbilly, a.k.a. Dr. Daniel Pierce of UNC Asheville, to find out the real history of moonshiners and their battles with the revenuers. He wrote about one of his experience of trying to chase down this uh, this bootlegger and this this souped up car, and he he complained that the government gave him these piece of crap, cheapo cars, and that, that were really no match. But he thought he was doing pretty good, and then the guy just hits it and just takes off and practically disappears. But then the guy makes a bootleg turn uh, and comes back towards him. And as he said, it was a game of chicken, and I was the chicken. And so he ran off the road. And actually, he was the guy who who caught Junior Johnson at his daddy's steal when Junior got tangled up in a a barbed wire fence. So check out the Moonshine and Motorsports Racing Podcast, available on YouTube, DailyDownForce.com, and all of your favorite podcasting platforms. And be sure to check out my regular show on NASCAR history, the Scene Vault Podcast. Hey there, NASCAR fans. Have you got your copy of the latest edition of NASCAR Pole Position Print Magazine? If not, there's no better time than now to subscribe at PolePositionMag.com. NASCAR Pole Position is the only print magazine covering NASCAR. Officially licensed by NASCAR, NASCAR Pole Position Magazine is published throughout the NASCAR season, and each edition is an instant collector's item backed with great feature stories and photography. The magazine is even mailed to you in a poly bag for those who love to collect NASCAR memorabilia. At PolePositionMag.com, you can even find past issues available to purchase. Get your subscription to NASCAR Pole Position and get great NASCAR content delivered straight to your mailbox throughout the season. Learn more at PolePositionMag.com. That's PolePositionMag.com. Hello, this is Rick Houston, and welcome to the Scene Vault Podcast, your source for all things NASCAR history. Hello, my name is Rick Houston, and welcome to Spun Out and Half Turned Over. No, wait. (laughs) I'm in a time warp here. Steve Wade could not be here this week. He is finally, finally moving this week, so... Next week when we record, we will be in his spacious new abode there in Charlotte. And this week I lined up a replacement, my good friend, Dennis One Race Chase Punch. That vein in your forehead is still there, Dennis Punch. Real cute. (laughs) At one point in our lives, got the big idea to do a podcast about NASCAR history. So spun out and half turned over, I think total... In the 30 episodes that we had, we might 
have had 30 listeners. I don't know, Dennis. Well, we actually had more family members than that, but after a while, <laughs> some of them didn't tune in. There will be a difference in this show and Spun Out and Half Turned Over because I know that there are at least a few people listening to the Scene Vault podcast. So, Dennis, introduce yourself. To give you a little of my background, um, we got into racing back in the early uh, 80s, uh, working with uh, Ned Jarrett, Ned Jarrett Enterprises, and through him, um, worked with the Bush brand, Anheuser-Busch, uh, became their representative on the Bush series, uh, consultant with them for um, eight, nine years, and uh, worked a lot with the tracks, the wholesalers, drivers, all those Bush programs from the the Bush Series to the Bush Pole Awards in all the divisions of NASCAR and, and then the development of what was the Bush North Series then and a great relationship with those folks and uh, still have maintained a relationship with a lot of those wholesalers even today. Uh, after that, worked with uh, uh, Mom and Pops and Western Steer. They were associate sponsorship uh, with Richard Childress Racing and Dale Earnhardt and during that period of time when, when they were associated with the, with the Earnhardts, uh, that's when the Earnhardt kids, Dale Jr., Kerry, and, and Kelly, were beginning their racing careers and late model stocks around uh, the North Carolina and South Carolina area. And so we did a lot of promotional work with them when they were first starting. And, uh, of course, looking back now with the success that uh, all they've had, uh, that's some, some wonderful memories. So basically what I hear you saying is that you are personally responsible for giving Dell Earnhardt Jr. and Kelly Earnhardt Miller their starts in this sport. This may be why our previous <laughs> podcast was not as successful as this one. Uh, and, and after that period of time, I see that you're still putting words in my mouth. <laughs> hey, I'm trying to pump you up, man. I'm your friend. Okay. <laughs> Depending on who hears this, uh, uh, might be the level of credit that I'll take for their careers. But uh, now that was uh, uh, that was wonderful. Looking back now, uh, how how raw they were with media, and of course that was before the social media craze. And and uh, actually, thank God there wasn't uh, cell phone cameras and not YouTube and and all that. Uh, uh, some of the fun we had, but uh, that was a, a, a great period of time, and being able to work with uh, Dale Senior and quite a few of the promotions that we did with Western Steer and Mom and Pops, uh, and and with the Children's Organization, just a just a wonderful group. And then uh, when their association uh, uh, ended, uh, went into uh, private practice, so to speak, and doing uh, public relations for uh, several different teams and drivers. And How many Bush Series teams did you represent? Well, it must have been, gosh, half well, that garage at one time or well, another. was friends with a lot of them. Those who actually paid you well, might be. There's, that's, <laughs> there's where the, the difference comes in, yes, yeah, is, yeah. is uh, how many checks you got to sign the back of. Let's see, Dennis Punch. Seems like I've heard that last name somewhere else in the sport. Is there any connection there? Yes, <laughs> there he is. At one time in, in my career, I was uh, Dr. Jerry Punch's brother. And uh, then as uh, things uh, got better for me, 
I introduced him as my brother. So that's been kind of a running joke uh, through the years. And he was also my birthday present uh, when I was five years old. And to give you a little explanation there, we had the same birthday. Do you really? Five years. I did not know that. Five years apart. Uh, my, uh, uh, we were small uh, f- uh, family in uh, Newton, North Carolina, and, and Dad had a lot of brothers and sisters. And uh, so any, any time somebody would have a birthday or an anniversary or that sort of thing, the whole family would get together and be like a church picnic. You'd, you know, everybody would bring something. So my fifth birthday... Everybody was at the house and brought a covered dish, and and I remember Dad taking me in there and sitting me on his bed and saying he was taking Mama to the hospital that uh, she was going to give birth to me, a brother and a sister. And at the time, being five years old and at my birthday party, that didn't really interest me. I wanted a bicycle. (laughs) And I was waiting for the presents to open so I could get my bicycle. And so uh, my grandparents stayed there with me, and Mother and Daddy went to the hospital, and Daddy came back later that night. And, of course, we were all still up waiting for him. And he came back in and told me I had a brother for a birthday present. And at the time, that didn't interest me at all because I didn't get to unwrap a bicycle at all. Did you ever get a bicycle? That Christmas. (laughs) (laughs) uh, Our birthday is in August. And uh, got a lot of nice presents, and we're thankful for every one of them. But I didn't get my bicycle. But that Christmas, uh, later that year, three or four months later, I did get my bicycle. And it was a surprise. And uh, Jerry claims that until I got my bicycle, I, I rode him instead. It's something that I've asked basically everybody who's been on the show as a guest host or whatever what did Winston Cup scene, Grand National scene, mean to you? That's an easy question uh, to answer. Uh, being uh, associated with, uh, of course, a series sponsor with uh, uh, Bush Beer and Anheuser Busch and, and their brands, uh, and then also with with various race teams and and sponsors. Uh, there were other uh, publications. Uh, much smaller uh, papers and publications that came out on a weekly or bi-weekly basis about the sport. But when the, when the scene came along and their team of photographers and, and writers, and I mean, it was important for, for your team, your sponsor, your brand uh, to be seen in scene each week. Uh, it was uh, obviously from a PR marketing standpoint, you certainly made friends with as many of those staff members as you could. And when you had uh, interesting stories or, or, or things about your team or sponsor, uh, you'd go to them to make sure they knew in hopes that you would get a mention uh, in, in the scene. And as the scene continued to grow, uh, in, in subscriber numbers, obviously it became more and more important. And uh, during that period, uh, which was a major growth period in our sport oh, yeah. back in the, in the Absolutely. 80s, early yeah. 90s, I mean, sponsors were coming on and, and uh, the, the return on investment for sponsors was just huge. And that's why so many uh, jumped into the sport. 
Uh, and it, the the scene was was something that, for the sake of a better term, it was the 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 Bible of uh, PR and marketing for a team at that time. Obviously, you'd do your press releases and you'd have your press conferences and the various promotions and things that you would do. But you you could reach your readers and fans uh, through stories and pictures uh, in the scene that just uh, increased the value of your relationship with whatever team or driver that you were with. So it was it, it was so important, probably a much overlooked uh, asset to the overall growth of the sport for many, many years. Well, I think Steve Wade put it best in the our very first episode of the Scene Vault podcast. I asked him what Scene's place was in the history of this sport, and he said, we hitched ourselves to a star. And at that time, NASCAR was exploding in popularity. And as NASCAR exploded in popularity, Scene became the go-to publication to read anything that was going on in NASCAR. At some point, though, current events becomes history. And I I couldn't tell you how many people that I've talked to on Twitter, heard from on Twitter or Facebook or whatever in person, and they've said, oh, man, I used to have just boxes and boxes and boxes of those papers but they eventually went to the dump or they eventually got recycled and they're not around anymore. Dennis, in all seriousness, how important do you think it is to see this 32-year archive of information be preserved for future generations? Well, no question. To, to preserve the history, uh, especially now with the NASCAR Hall of Fame, uh, there, are, there are several colleges uh, primarily in North Carolina, but throughout the Southeast, who have uh, some form of motorsports curriculum or communications or journalism classes. Uh, and, and some of the history of this sport is a valuable part of what they're teaching. And to have uh, these the, the archives with the scene and uh, the articles and the, uh, the photos uh, – to be preserved uh, gives this new generation of race fan an idea of why the sport grew like it did, where it where it was, uh, how it grew, uh, what it became, and uh, also uh, some of the obvious uh, leaders and, and Hall of Famers uh, that have passed and what they meant to the sport. So it's a that history and and that. Uh, collection of, of scene and articles and 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 history of our sport. It's um, it, it's almost like the Encyclopedia of Motorsports in one publication. Well, you know, I had to laugh when Joy Logano got into the back of Martin Truex at Martinsville, and social media exploded, saying either Joy Logano is the dirtiest driver who ever lived, or you do what you have to do on the last lap at a short track. It fell in one of those two categories. And to me, history is about giving perspective, you know, because there were some who were acting like that was the first time in all of NASCAR history that that had ever happened. And you and I both know that going through these Winston Cup scenes, Grand National scenes, NASCAR scenes, we could pull out countless races where a race was decided on the last lap by a last lap move, a last lap bump and run, was the move that Joy Logano made fair? Was it unfair? 
I don't know. Depends on your perspective. Go back and look at what happened between Jeff Gordon and Rusty Wallace at Bristol. Look back and what happened with Dell Earnhardt and Terry Labonte at Bristol. Look back and see what happened between countless drivers. Of course, Dale, he just wanted to rattle his cage. He didn't want to spin him out. Yeah, buddy. Sure. Okay, all right. I hear you. I hear you. So you're well, one of those, about, huh? Well, how about the uh, 89 Winston uh, with the – Absolutely. Uh, Absolutely. BW and Rusty uh, eh, going for the win. Well, Dennis, I tell you what, <laughs> that is probably the longest introduction that this show has ever had, but that's okay. Right now, tell our listeners what we've got coming up in this episode. Well, it's going to be an action-packed episode because you've got the third installment – uh, with Rusty Wallace and uh, in-depth interview with him. And also in your Grand National Scene issue of the week, which will take us back to 1979, we'll be talking about that championship battle, that chase. You did not just say chase. Yes, I did. You know how that triggers me, man. <laughs> Come on! <laughs> How hard was it to remain competitive? Because you had the awesome year in 93, you had the the really good year in 94, and you mentioned 95 kind of trailed off a little bit. How hard was it to remain competitive and keep winning races? It wasn't hard at all. Uh, it, it, that wasn't hard at all to, to keep that going. What we were struggling with was uh, trying to figure some new things out. Uh, we were actually struggling a lot, believe it, or not, even, believe it or not. Even though we won that many races back in 94 in a Ford, our first year in a Ford, we started having all kind of engine problems. We had to go to an outside source. We had to go to Larry Wallace to start getting a, building engines for us. Yeah. We were blowing stuff up left and right. And I think we won eight races and going through, went through pure hell to win eight. But we couldn't just get stuff going. And so we were, we were not smooth sailing. 93 felt real smooth. The engines were reliable. Everything was good. We switched to Ford. Yeah, we won a lot of races, but then we just started having these issues. And it's like, it'd be like Jimmy Johnson winning all these championships and go, what in the hell's wrong? You're like, well, if I knew I was wrong, I'd fix it. You know, yeah, I can't yeah. point to it. I, 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 I'm chasing all these little things that are not working and trying to plug them all up, you know. It's like one of those pop-up machines. Yeah, you know? whack-a-mole. Yeah, 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 yeah. It just, like, I'd fix this one and that pop-up. It just, that's, damn, man. It's either a tire problem, an aero problem, or a damn this is wrong or this guy just figured it out and we didn't figure that out i felt like i was always behind trying to figure stuff out yeah. us behind yeah. you know somebody was always ahead of us figuring stuff out so i i chased that for a long time you know at what point but i never gave up i never got oh no never yeah. got tired yeah. a week it, it just got frustrating because we were just trying to figure out what was going on you know at what point did you make the decision to retire what point did i make the decision to retire uh it had to be it was getting late though it was getting like um 2000 in Three, I was starting. My my performance was good, but it wasn't that dominating performance. And I think I honestly think I a little bit got snookered by some of the, some some media people that were. I almost talked myself into second guessing myself. I actually talked because I'm I'm not up there every week running in the top two or top three. I found myself having these damn seventh place finishes. I can look back and say, where'd you finish? Seventh. Where'd you finish? Seventh. Where'd you run all day long? Seventh. I'm going, what the hell? I had this seven number burned in my head because later in my career, that kept happening. And then I was in Indianapolis. I'll never forget it. And I can't remember which reporters that came up to me. 
but it wasn't one. It was like three. And they said, how much longer are you going to drive? You, you getting close to retirement now? And I'm like, I said, I never thought about that. What makes you think that? Well, you know, you know, your performance is starting to trail off a little bit, you know. And, yeah. and um, then I went to resign my contract with Roger, and we resigned for another three years. And maybe it was 2002 or something when we did that. And he was like, let's, let's, just, let's just do three more because, you know, I think you're good right there. You know, I said, okay. You know, and then, then, I, went, then I went to Daytona. Somebody, somebody said, I'm thinking all that. People are putting that in my mind. But before all that, even while people are putting it in my mind, 2002, 2003, Earnhardt gets killed in 01 in Daytona. Yeah. I go there a week before that. And Mr. Francis, hey, man, come up to the office and let's hang out and talk some airplanes because he loved airplanes. So, And I had a, a Lear 31A then, and he loved Lear Jets too. So we're up there talking. And he said, man, how much longer can I keep doing this? I said, well, what do you mean? I said, I'm winning right now. Well, I know, but, you know, he says, i tell you what, man, I've been watching your career. He says, he said, it went up, 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 and now it's right here, and you're kind of doing this. Did he really? He, wow. held, he held his hand up. Wow. Just like I'm holding my hand up. He said, it's starting to do this right now. And he said, man, we could use, you, we could use you in this sport for a long time and just in other things. He said, I'd hate to see your ass go out there and get hurt. He said, I hate to see you go out there and get hurt and something go wrong, you know. And I said, I'll, I blew them all off. I said, okay, I got it, you know. And this is the week before. This is Daytona 500 when he got killed. Wow. So then I go in the 500, Earnhardt gets killed, and I finish third. And I'm thinking, oh, man, this is, boy, he's gonna, Earn, Earnhardt's going to be pissed. I've been here all for two weeks now. Yeah. Done wrecked in the last yeah. lap. Yeah. And him and I wrecked a hell of a lot more harder than what he just wrecked. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Oh, man, you know. So uh, we got all done. Myself, my wife, Patty, Greg Penske, us three jump in a car. We hear that he's really been hurt bad, and he's our buddy, you know? Yeah. And we just we were all kind of hanging out in boats and doing some fun things, you know, when we weren't racing. The whole crowd, the Penske's, me, Earnhardt, all of us. And so anyway, we go over to the hospital, and um, we find out that he did pass away. And I'm standing here, and out there, about 10 foot away from me, there's Mr. France. He's standing right there, and he looks me straight in the eye. Damn. And he holds his hand up, and he goes like this. Did he? He looked me straight in the eye and held his hand up and, and wobbled it like a teeter-totter back and forth. And nobody ever known we had just lost our biggest star in NASCAR. And he, there he was saying, hey, you've run enough, man. You've won everything in the world. You don't need to go no more. That's what he was trying to talk. He was almost trying to talk me into quitting, Mr. Francois. Oh, yeah, yeah. And, yeah. Then, and then the media guys started asking me, too. And then after that happened... I, I kept having it in the back of my mind. I'm thinking, what do I need to I'm, – I'm still doing this, but I'm, I'm, I'm just repetitive. I go to the track. I'd sit in the motorhome by myself. I would watch all this run, and I'm going – everybody's trying to kick my ass every single week, and I'm getting tired of this. Tired of living in a motorhome. I'm tired of living in hotels. I'm tired of living this non-traditional life, but I, I was so eager for it when I was growing up. And then I almost talked myself into it, and then, and then I said, you know, maybe this time. And then I started to get the TV people come up to me going, hey, man, we're getting ready to start this network. You know, we'd love to have you work for us. I'm like, ESPN was. And I'm like, you know what? If I don't take this advantage now, somebody else is going to get it. And really, I probably only want to do this maybe two or three years more anyway. So I said, hell, let's do it. And when I pulled the trigger, I said, I'm quitting. It was the sickest thing I ever said in my life. I thought I could pull it back and make it stop. Cause was it really? Yeah, it, yeah. it was frustrating because I almost got mad. I almost got mad at people around me suggesting me to do that, 
But everybody said it's the right decision. When it was all said and done, it was the right decision. Roger Penske said, it's the right decision to stop whining and trying to make your, <laughs> quit making it feel so bad. You know, I said, okay. And when Roger Penske tells you to quit whining. Yeah, yeah. he says, just quit it, man. It's the right decision, yeah. you know. So we quit, I quit driving in 05, and then for four years, I see him at the IndyCar races, and I see him at stock car races, and when I'm doing television, and he would always praise me for quitting. He said, this, he, we'd be in speeches. He looked me in the eye and he goes, this guy right here made the right decision. He said, he's a businessman. He knew when to hang it up. He goes out a champion. He goes out a winner. Didn't have a crappy last year or none of that. Won out. Made the chase for the championship. Bunch of second place finishes. Didn't win in 05, but won in 04. And uh, he, he's always pat me on the back, which made me feel really good coming out of a guy like that. You know, When it came down to it, though, how big an adjustment was it not to get in that car every week? It was a big adjustment. In fact, I remember one time I was up in the mountains of North Carolina with one of my friends, and he said, Bill, you're the stupidest bastard. You should have never got out of that car. That was yeah. dumb. That was dumb. We're sitting there. And then that particular day, Richard Childers was just trying to find a driver, really having a tough time. And I knew he just hired one. So I, call, I was sitting there. We were having some beers up the house, and I called him up. And I said, okay, hey, put me back in that car. <laughs> he goes, he goes, damn, man, you wish you'd have called me, you know, a month before. You know, I already put Clint Boyer in this car, you know. And, yeah. and I'm like, I think I made a mistake, you know. And, and then I woke up the next morning and go, man, I had too many beers, you know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You know? I said, what did I say all that shit for, you know. But anyway, uh, that was it. But I, I second-guessed myself and then. TV stuff was fun. I enjoyed that. But, you know, that was just way too many damn bosses, you know. I could I thought that I thought I was going to be able to be me, and I couldn't be me the way I wanted to be me. Right. This couldn't, you know. Too many damn rules, you know, and I just couldn't do it. Finally, I settled in. I said, okay, this is my little spot where I hang out, and that's what I do, you know. Yeah. And shit, it was I, – I made good money over there and did all that, but it was just I, – I, I very seldom came home with a big smile on my face and – now I'm doing radio, and I come home with a smile on my face every week, and my wife says, man, what a difference. That's awesome. She says, you yeah. come home with a smile on your face every week right now. Last question. You get elected to the NASCAR Hall of Fame, which is obviously the pretty much the pinnacle in this sport. Can't ask for anything more. How surreal a moment was that for you? It was a major surprise that I got in as fast as I got in. It was the highlight of my career. It's because I didn't have to be judged by all these different people that either like Rusty or didn't like Rusty. It's like, okay, it's over now. They brought me in for my numbers and hopefully for what I've tried to contribute to the sport. And when I got that word that I was going to be inducted into the NASCAR Hall of Fame, I just, my whole body felt heat flow through it. Wow. And I just felt totally different. And, and I almost had something inside me going, for the amount of rusty haters are out there, <laughs> yeah. for, for yeah. amount of the rusty haters are out there, screw you. <laughs> you know, screw you. I'm, in, yeah. the, I'm yeah. in the Hall of Fame, and here I am. And then Ned Jarrett came up to me. I'll never forget this. I get in the Hall of Fame, and I come walking out of the building. Where I'm, I'm walking past I'm coming out of the back entrance in the loading dock next to the dumpsters. It was it was me <laughs> yeah. and Ned Jarrett, and he stopped me and put his arm on my shoulder. He said, the rest of your life, people are going to treat you different. I said, what do you mean? He said, they're going to instead of calling you Rusty, they're going to call you Mr. Wallace. I said, yeah. well, I don't know if I want to do that. It yeah. makes me yeah. feel older, yeah. you know? Yeah. He said, no, they're just going to give you more respect. I said, really? And I, I got to tell you, people have been so nice to me. 
everywhere I go, they go. And coming up next is NASCAR Hall of Famer Rusty Wallace. Yeah. It's not Rusty Wallace. Yeah. Our 89 champion, Rusty Wallace. It's coming up next, NASCAR Hall of Famer Rusty Wallace. And it's just got a really cool feeling to it. And I really, really appreciate it. But back then, when they told me I was nominated, I couldn't believe that I was going in ahead of like Benny Parsons. Benny was out there forever and ever, and I thought he deserved to get in a lot earlier than I did. And I still do. But I'm not giving it back, okay? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'm not yeah, giving it back. Yeah, yeah. But, you know, I looked at guys like that. I looked at Parsons, and I looked at different people that I thought should have been in there. Because even though I had the better numbers and all that, it was, to me, the Hall of Fame was all about the huge big picture. And it still is. But I, and I remember Jerry Punch getting a hold of me after I got inducted, and he told me how it kind of broke down in that room. And he said, you know, it was... He said there wasn't there wasn't hardly any debating. It, you just they said Rusty Wallace and they said in. That was basically it. You know, yeah. I'm, I'm exaggerating that a little bit, but he said it went that fast. That much made me feel really good. You know. Well, Dennis, that's the Rusty Wallace interview, and I know for a fact that your family has a pretty doggone close connection to Rusty Wallace a very important connection to Rusty Wallace. Yes, it was, Rick, and it's a, a very vivid recollection of a spring race, uh, 1988 at Bristol. Uh, of course, I was there uh, working with uh, Anheuser-Busch and the Bush brand, and my brother Jerry was there working with uh, ESPN. And during uh, cup practice, uh, we were standing along pit road, uh, just catching up, saying hello, and uh, talking about the, the, the upcoming races that weekend. And I was facing toward turn four, and Jerry was looking toward turn one as we were standing uh, on pit road. And all of a sudden, I saw Rusty's car just take a right and go up into the fourth turn wall. Wow, yeah. And, 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 and I mean, it was just an unbelievable sound. Yeah. And, and then the, the car started barrel rolling down the front stretch and ended uh, up on the uh, the wall along the front stretch the front end up on the wall and the rear wheels down on the, the pit wall track. you're talking about the pit wall the there pit wall. Yeah, okay yes. yeah uh, the inside retaining right. wall on the front stretch at bristol and of course when we heard the sound uh jerry turned around and as the car ended up we were probably 50 feet away and and he said, come on. And he started running down there to the car. And of course, there were other people coming out there and, and I ran along behind him and he jumped over the wall and pulled the, the, the net down. And all I could see was Jerry about half his torso wow. in the driver's side window, uh, working on him. Uh, you know, loosening the helmet and and working on him, and then obviously the uh, safety crews were were there uh, immediately, and, and of course they just surrounded the car and going in the passenger side uh, window, and and I was kind of standing back behind Jerry, you know, kind of just standing there holding people back from wanting to get in there so they could i had no idea of the severity of oh, yeah, any yeah. injuries yeah. Or, or what jerry was doing but uh things calmed down and and of course the medical team safety team was there and and jerry came back 
out of the uh, window there and, you know, said, he's going to be okay. And then kind of backed off and, and you know, and then they uh, took him from the car and took him on to the infield medical center and maybe on to the hospital. I don't know. But I didn't realize until later on that uh, some quick action uh, by Jerry, you know, might have uh, might have saved his life. I don't think there's any motive to it. Uh, yeah. I mean, it, 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 it might have been the question of, you know, this tongue and pulling his uh, tongue out of his throat and clearing the you know passage uh, airway passage there and uh, uh, i did not know obviously the severity of the crash or or any type of injury to rusty until later on Uh, but i do remember the crash i do remember jerry going down there and attended to him and working with the safety personnel and the medical folks there at the track and and together um rusty wallace was uh able to come back to the track and drive in the cup race that weekend dennis i think that speaks volumes about the mindset of a driver at that time that accident was on friday afternoon two days later rusty wallace races in the Valleydale meets 500 and goes 500 laps goes the distance mile track yeah where he just had an horrific crash yeah absolutely two days ago yeah so that is one serious incident that we look back on with Rusty and of course your brother there's a <laughs> there's another incident that took place with Rusty at Charlotte and I think you've got a memory or two about that as well yeah I do and I was uh, there for for that one as well in um in 1997, October, uh, one of the previous races leading up to the Charlotte Fall Race, uh, Rusty had got a little uh, ambitious on the radio and uh, <laughs> uh, was heard using some uh, uh, cuss words. Not Rusty. It, it, no it, way. It, I, it, I do not believe it. Rumor has it that <laughs> it happened. And uh, the uh, sanctioning body... Uh, was not too uh, fond of the words and the language that he used, and they fined him $5,000. Now, this was in 1997. $5,000 is a lot different then than 2018. So uh, Rusty uh, obviously was going to pay the fine, but he was going to get some mileage out of it and show his displeasure in being fined. So in the garage area at Charlotte Motor Speedway on the first day the track was open, practice day, Rusty hired a Brinks truck to come into the garage area. And in the back of that truck was 3,500 pounds of pennies. (laughs) Now, before you start weighing pennies, I can tell you that's 500,000 pennies in bags, in armored bags in this truck. So prior to the practice session, I mean, Rusty had to pay his fine back then before. Yeah, you before know, he, he got on practice. the track. Yeah. yeah. So he was going to pay his fine, but he was going to get some mileage out of it. Of course, the media were alerted to what was going to happen. So uh, Rusty got Bill France and uh, was going to pay his fine. And they walked over to the back of the Brinks truck. And, of course, the media surrounding, you know, just waiting for this to happen. And they opened the back of the Brinks truck, and there's all those bags <laughs> of pennies. And Rusty yeah. said, Mr. France, here's my, here's my fine. Well, they laughed about it and, you know, thought that was cute. 
now, Penske South did pay uh, a $5,000 check. I mean, this was just a, uh, a little a funny ha-ha way of uh, making a point about the fine. But it, 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 was, uh, uh, it was humorous, it was funny, and to see the look on Mr. Francis' face when, uh, when they opened the back of that Brinks truck, and there was, I mean, a lot of bags of pennies. 500,000 pennies is a lot of pennies. And they were all in those Brinks bags in the back of that truck. So pretty cute little incident uh, with Rusty off the racetrack. Dennis, I could not begin to tell you how many interviews I've done over the course of my career now. I couldn't even tell you. I couldn't even guess how many interviews I've done. And sometimes they run together because, you know, some interviews are just mundane and you just get the information you need and you go on about your way, you write your story. When I sat down with Rusty for this interview and he talked about the conversation that he had with Bill France Jr. leading up to the 2001 Daytona 500 and then afterwards, Dennis, I can count on the fingers of one hand the times that I've had that kind of chill come down my spine because that was truly a very, very powerful moment because I hate the fact that you couldn't see what Rusty was doing, but he had his hand in basically a timeout formation like you would see in basketball or football. You know, his hands were making a tee. What Bill France Jr. was telling him was that he was basically at a, at a tipping point in his career. And before the 500, Bill Jr. was telling him that he didn't want to see him get hurt. He didn't want to see anything happen that would maybe taint the rest of his life and career and so on and so forth. But then they go to the hospital when Dell Sr. gets hurt and you know, we now know very sadly that he lost his life. They go to the hospital, and right there in the hospital, Bill France Jr. looks at Rusty and makes that same timeout hand gesture. And I cannot imagine what must have went through Rusty's mind at that point. Cannot imagine. No, that's powerful. That's uh, that's that's powerful stuff there. That uh, being involved in the sport and and knowing the dangers in the sport and knowing the decisions you have to make of, of, of when to retire and when's the right time and, and all those questions that you have to ask about your career and your family. And, and uh, a, a moment like that, uh, that's a part of the history of this sport that, that, that needs to be told, that, 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 that fans need to know about how, uh, how serious this sport is, uh, and how emotional this sport can be, and uh, how how the personal touch. Uh, I mean, these these drivers uh, we see them going 200 miles an hour, um, and then we see them drive home with their families. I mean, they're they're humans too, but the risks that they took uh, for the love of the sport and something they loved uh, is, is something that needs to be told and preserved. Well, I think another thing that it says is, I think it also says that Bill France Jr. truly did care about his competitors. Now, was he a tough leader? Yeah. Was it his way or the highway? Yeah. But for him to have that kind of conversation with Rusty and to offer that kind of advice, 
to me, it says that Bill France Jr. considered this sport more than just a dog and pony show where the drivers were his minions or show ponies or, or whatever. You either liked his leadership style or you didn't. But the fact remains, he did care. And I think that's what I took out of that moment afterwards. Dennis, after Joy Logano won the championship at Homestead, you and I have been talking about some of the close championship battles that we have seen or know about. And the issue of the week that I wanted to talk about is the November 22nd, 1979 issue of Grand National Scene. And that carried coverage of the 1979 season finale at Ontario Motor Speedway. Going into that race, Dennis, Darrell Waltrip led Richard Petty by two points. How nervous do you think those two drivers were going into that event? Now, Richard Petty had already won six, so I think, you know, he was used to being there. But as far as Daryl goes, no. <laughs> he was on pins and needles that whole week going into that race. Yeah, he was just a, a young whippersapper, so to speak, uh, battling for that championship. And uh, stepping back for a second, we were talking about the history of the sport. And uh, how many of our fans are now Googling Ontario Motor Speedway? <laughs> To figure out yeah. where that is yeah, yeah. and when this happened. Yeah. 1979. Are you kidding me? I never heard of Ontario Motor Speedway. Right outside Fontana, yes. very close to what's now California Speedway. That's right. So it was it was right there in the Southern California market, and that's where it all came down to. They held the season finale yeah. there for several seasons. They sure did. You know, I can't imagine what must have been going through Daryl's mind because he had been successful with the Die Guard racing team for several years, but this was the closest that he had come so far to winning the championship, and he was the leader going into the last race, but he was the leader by less than the point margin of one finishing position there in the top few positions and put yourself in daryl's shoes earlier that year in in august uh he led richard petty by 229 points oh yeah he was on cruise control at that point and yeah you know, let's let's just go ahead and finish these races and uh, w- win a championship but yeah think about approaching the series final now uh, in ontario leading a six-time champion by only two points after leading by over 200 three months earlier you know back in august i would say daryl thought that he had it in the bag because the year before in 1978 richard most people thought that he was all but done you know he had had a wreck broken his neck had stomach trouble had you know surgery on that had a portion of his stomach taken out so you know there were more than a few people who thought that richard petty was done in 1978 so come august daryl waltrip is leading by 200 and some odd points he figures he's got it in the bag and one thing leads to another and those points start falling away and the margin keeps shrinking and shrinking and so yeah daryl must have just been completely spun out and then as events happened early in the race uh, didn't help his blood pressure any either (laughs) no it did not because lap 38 john rezek spins and Daryl Waltrip has to loop his Chevrolet to keep from getting into the accident and comes into the pits for a pit stop, you know, change tires. And who laps him? 
none other than his good friend, <laughs> Bobby Allison. So, you know, he's basically behind the eight ball right from the get-go in that race. At, at that point, uh, Daryl knew that he had to stay out of trouble and finish the best he could uh, and hope uh, that some misfortune uh, would happen to some of the contenders, notably Richard. Richard. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, you know, he's, his wishes for a miracle uh, didn't materialize, but uh, uh, as good as that year was for Daryl and his team, uh, that was a, a pretty tough pill to swallow. Now, Daryl did manage to salvage an eighth-place finish one lap down to winner Benny Parsons, but Richard Petty finished fifth. And that gave him the 1979 Winston Cup Championship by 11 points, Dennis. 11. And, and at that time, that was the smallest margin yeah. of victory for a champion in series history. So quite an afternoon in California for sure. And what I thought was funny is going through this issue, both Daryl and Richard came away disappointed that they didn't win the race. You know, Daryl wanted to win the race in order to clinch the championship, but Richard also wanted to win the race regardless of what happened with the championship. He wanted that race trophy on his mantle, and in the issue – Richard Petty was quoted as saying, to tell you the truth, I'm disappointed I didn't win the race. The championship sure finishes up my year, but I really came here trying to win the race. I found out in racing that you can get in just as much trouble by cooling it. And you can. You know, if you're laying back, you know, things are going to happen to you. Things can happen to you, and they most definitely have. Yeah, In that issue, uh, Richard went on to say that that number seven is, is really just one more number than six. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Little did he know the importance that uh, that number would be. <laughs> maybe labor, later when I think about it, the point championship will be more important. But today, the race was the most important thing. Yeah. And that's the way drivers thought. Yeah. They went to that racetrack to carry that trophy home. Yeah. The, the, the paychecks weren't that big at that time. But when you, when you left the track with that trophy – that's what they pulled in hoping for. And I think the mindset there was Richard was trailing by just two points. So if he wins the race, then the championship is the gravy. Job done. Yeah. Yes. The championship is the icing on the cake. So I think that's where Richard was coming from. You know, he had won six tiles before, six, seven. You know, what's the difference in six and seven? So I can kind of understand where he was coming from. But, you know, <laughs> I know it's kind of hard to believe, but Daryl maybe sort of kind of, in a way, took a shot at his Guard racing team. I know that they were the very best of friends at the time and always on the same page. But Daryl said in this issue, Richard came here to race. I told my people that, and they didn't believe me. We didn't come here to race. We came here to win the championship. But you should always try to win the race. I think the mindset there was similar to Richard's. You win the race with a two-point margin, you're going to clinch the championship. Yeah, absolutely. So, yeah. They were racing each other, but they both knew that if they won the race, the points championship would follow. You could almost imagine the disappointment that he must have felt in coming that close to winning the championship and falling short. Daryl said in that issue, the best thing I could do then after the accident with John Rezac was to stay out of trouble and hope something would happen to Richard. I started hoping for a miracle that didn't come. 
this year was my best, but it was still pretty hard to swallow. Say what you want to about the chase for the championship. Say what you want to about the playoffs. Say what you want to about stage racing. This was a championship that must have been absolutely beautiful to watch. I can't imagine what it must have been like to be involved in the sport at that time. Well, I can agree. And and relaying back to uh, other close championships that uh, we were present for and and some of the tight point battles that went to the final races of the season, uh, it made me appreciate more when I looked at this issue that we're discussing today and the, the issue of the week and the championship battle that went on. Um, of course, I had seen the figures, and I knew that Richard had won the championship by 11 points. I didn't know a lot of the reasons why yeah, and what yeah, happened yeah. during the race. That goes back to preserving a lot of this history that we've been talking about. But uh, this was the one of the early uh, point battles that went to the final race of the season, and the guy leading, taking the green flag, wasn't the winner of the championship when the checkered yeah. flag yeah. flew. Uh, so this might have been the forerunner of uh, some of the championship battles that we've seen more recently. Now, Dennis, I have to ask, what were you doing in 1979? We have to make the Scene Vault podcast a TV show. <laughs> In uh, not- Dennis Punch is thinking. I can see the smoke coming out of his ears. <laughs> In 1979, uh, I was living in Charlotte, North Carolina, and I was working as an insurance adjuster with Aetna Life and Casualty and lived in a neighborhood Uh, of course i was married had two sons lived in a neighborhood uh, with uh, 14 people that also worked at at aetna and eight of them uh, played college baseball and we had a company softball team at aetna and we won the national championship in slow pitch softball a couple years before and 79 uh, was really the last year that all of us lived in that neighborhood together uh, before they started branching out into different phases of their career. And then the year after, in, in 80, is when uh, my wife and I and the family moved back uh, to Newton, and I started uh, pursuing a career in uh, sports and racing. Now ask me what I was doing in 1979. Okay, now it's your turn, Mr. MC. What were you doing in 1979? I was 12 years old (laughs) and in the sixth grade. (laughs) Yes, I'm the youngest person in the room. Yes, sir. I didn't see that coming. Oh, come on. You you had to. You had to. You you, You led me right into that. That was good. That was good. So I take it then you were not at Ontario. I was not at cheering in, on your no, favorite. I was rival. not. I was not. I was still worshiping at the altar of Pete Rose. Well, that's a whole nother podcast. Yeah. Right oh, there. oh, yeah. That, uh, yeah. We don't want to go down that road right now. Yeah. How is that Hall of Fame <laughs> candidacy going for you? <laughs> Dennis in a throwback to spun out and half turned over. The white flag is out. We're coming to the end of our podcast. We're coming to the checkered flag. And in all seriousness, Dennis, thank you so much. 
for stepping into the void and serving as co-host. It has been so good to catch up with you. It's been so good to laugh with you. I truly do appreciate your friendship and your guidance and mentorship over the years. Uh, We had some fun trips along the way back in our careers. Uh, uh, One of my most uh, uh, enjoyable memories uh, was going to the ball games with you and when we went to uh, Dodger Stadium. Oh, yeah. Why don't you tell that story? We were at uh, uh, California Speedway in Fontana, and I had found out that you and two of your associates with the scene had made arrangements to, to go to the Dodger game that night. And uh, I'd never been to Dodger Stadium before and was a lifelong Dodger fan. And you were a hardcore Dodger fan. Hardcore. Yeah. Back when I was a young boy living in Newton, the radio station here broadcast the Brooklyn Dodger games. Now, granted, I was a sapling of a kid, but I remember those games and was a lifelong Dodger fan. So this was my opportunity, and I invited myself to go with you. So uh, (laughs) we went to the game. And had great seats, uh, maybe 10, 15 rows up, kind of beside the dugout. And in the very first inning, the second batter fouls a pitch back over the screen. And I was sitting beside you, and we turn around to see where the foul ball went. And it hit the base of the mezzanine section and bounced back toward us. And to this day, I can't believe how it happened. But as you turned around, the ball would have hit you in the back of the head had you not turned around. And you turned around and caught it. I caught it, baby. You caught it. I caught it. I was a witness to it. And I promise you, I never saw you get your first bicycle. But I can't believe you were any more happy than you were catching that foul ball at Dodger Stadium. Oh, it was it was quite an event to, to go to Dodger Stadium, but to see you catch that foul ball. Um, that was a treat. That was in April of the year 2000. So for 18 years now, I have been looking for a tape of that broadcast because one of the people that came down said that Vin Scully had mentioned my catch on the air. Vin Scully, Dennis. Vin Scully. I remember you looking up toward the booth and holding that ball up. Like it was a trophy, which it was. Yeah, it, yeah, it, it, it was. was a trophy, and I would have, I would have done the same thing. Now, Dennis, let me ask you this: That was in California. The very next race was in Richmond, Virginia. You and I went to a Richmond Braves minor league ball game. Do you remember what happened at the Richmond Braves minor league ball game? The very next week, less than a week later. No, I don't. Batter squared around the bunt, dinked it over the backstop, right into my hands. I caught another foul ball on the fly. And to this day, I remember exactly what you told me. You looked at me and you said, come on, we're going to go buy some lottery tickets. Two foul balls on the fly at consecutive ball games. I do remember that now. I, I must admit I, I had forgotten that, but I, I, I do remember that. Yep, that was uh, that was fun. We had some fun going to ball games when we raced at Nazareth. We'd go over to see the Phillies play. Uh, when we raced at another year, when we were in Fontana, we went to uh, uh, Angel Stadium see the Angels play. And I got another foul ball, but that's besides the point. We won't go there. We won't go there. I'll let Steve Wade tell that story. <laughs> Listeners, after hearing that, I do not know how you could help, but 
support the production of this podcast on Patreon, patreon.com slash the scene vault podcast. If you don't want to be tied down to a monthly commitment, paypal.me slash the scene vault podcast. And if you'll leave us a review on iTunes, I would truly appreciate it. Dennis, again, thank you. It's been my pleasure, Rick. It's been fun. Uh, enjoyed reminiscing about some of the old times. Uh, really enjoyed talking about the past history of the sport and, and, and what scene which sport? has meant. Da- which sport, baseball or NASCAR? Well, <laughs> actually, both are, yeah, are, are, yeah. are loves of mine. But uh, the recollections of uh, these past races uh, leading up to championships, championship races, and uh, the past issues of the scene and what it's meant to the sport. Uh, it's brought back a lot of fond memories today. I've thoroughly enjoyed it. Uh, hopefully, uh, uh, Steve will never have to miss another podcast. <laughs> but if he does, I'll welcome a call to work with you again. Thanks, Rick.